following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome back to Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. I'm here today with my special guest, Dr. Fred Gertz. Hi, good to be here. Good to see you, Fred. And certified financial planner professional Ryan Repko, who works with me at Rudy Wealth. Ryan, good, good morning. Good morning. How are those grandkids of mine sleeping these days? Finally back on a regular schedule, and you can tell my eyes aren't purple. <laughs> right. <laughs> and certified financial planner professional and retirement income certified professional David Rudy. Good morning. Yeah, you tell I woke up at 3 in the morning last night and never fell back asleep. My voice always gets deeper. <laughs> Maybe that sounds like it to me. I don't know. Maybe like that's it. a good thing for radio. That yeah, could a good be. radio voice. It's the Barry White well, effect. Well, Mike Michael Kaiser says <laughs> yeah. he wakes up every, you know, I think at four, three or four every morning, and so maybe that's why he's got that. That's the secret. Secret voice. That they, they never told me that. You can call with your questions at two one seven three five six nine three nine seven or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line three five one five three five seven. You can also email your question to talk at WDWS.com. We also want to welcome those tuning in on Facebook Live. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should, do, you should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. And today, in honor of October, I guess the boys are, Fred, are you know, celebrating the spooky season. So we're going to be discussing <laughs> a couple of Halloween-themed the- Halloween blogs that, the, that they wrote. And uh, some tom- common retirement fear. So I guess that's the spooky part. We yeah. invite you to be part of the show by calling to tell us anything that scares you about retirement. We'll try to f- <laughs> get those evil ghouls out of your retirement closet. How about that? Well, Fred, unemployment looks uh, pretty darn good from what I can tell. I can get my notes here. But, uh, you know, we go to a three and a half. It's interesting how every seems like every other show, you know, People think we're going into recession, and then they're not. But when I look at unemployment at 3.5%, the lowest Americans have really seen, or most people in their lifetimes. Then we look at even in the Hispanic unemployment rate fell to 3.9%, and and, uh, black unemployment, or I guess they say African-American unemployment. This is I'm just reading from uh, a blog here, uh, Brian Westbury's blog. Uh, Unemployment rate remains at 5.5. Both set record lows. Workers age 25 plus who lack high school degree have an unemployment rate of 4.8%. This is a group whose jobless rate peaked at 15.8% back in 2010. I mean, that's, you know, it's been cut by two-thirds. Yeah, it's really amazing. Uh, the same thing is true for Illinois. Illinois is down to uh, around 4%, which is the lowest at least in 30, 40 years. So um, that's good news. The There's always uh, a fly in the ointment, but... Uh, the uh, well, that's what economists are yeah, for, right? right? The unemployment rate is something called a lag indicator, so it uh, tells where we are, where we've been, it doesn't tell where we're going. In fact, uh, unemployment didn't go up for a while after things slowed down. So I think there is a slowing of the economy, but that's a long ways from saying there's a, a recession. That's right. We're in this plow horse economy again. <laughs> right. We've established that it's official, uh, but still, it seems like when you're talking about. That blog said was the lowest people have seen in their life. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. It certainly could be at three and a half percent. It's hard to imagine that that suddenly shifts, but I guess anything no. can happen. No, it wouldn't. It would uh, go gradually. But again, uh, I, I think uh, right now the market's looking for bad news rather than good news. So every every it seems like every two or three days we swing one way or a, another, and there's a lot of things going on. I, uh, many people believe that the. Uh, Trade policies started to hit home, and we started to get some, some real effects after a couple of years. Uh, uh, we've been saying it's a bad idea for a long time, yeah. but uh, there seems to be uh, uh, demonstrably sort of results now, demonstrable results that uh, suggest that that's true. So again, not everything's great, but not everything's bad either. And the other thing is that uh, uh, the United States is, in a sense, leading the world now in terms of economic growth, aside from maybe Australia and. New Zealand, so we can't rely a lot on other countries pulling us along at this point. Yeah, and it almost seems like a lot of those countries, a lot of the international economies, are actually slowing, you know, yeah. uh, considerably. I guess not recessions yet, but yeah. but they continue to slow. Well, 
Illinois, I read an interesting uh, article, I think it was yesterday in the, I think it was Chicago Tribune. Uh, Chicago and Illinois don't have enough taxpayers to pay for all this was the was the title. And it really just talked about how Illinois suffered many of these uh, fiscal catastrophes in its school districts, cities, townships, counties, and of course state government. Yet there's only one set of taxpayers to address the layers of distress, the people who live here now. And it really it's, it's talking about how there's literally these trade-offs, particularly in Chicago, where yeah. you know if this if the teachers unions want this 280 million more, it's got to come from somewhere because they're already bleeding seven or eight hundred million. Right. And it's kind of like, well, if the <laughs> if the teachers union gets it, we got to take it away from the kids. Uh, li- literally, these types of trade offs we're making. But the the point of the article was, you know. I guess it was there. You know, there's only one group of people that people that live here now, and that's changing. And over the last five years, there's been people right. leaving the state, and the higher incomes are more mobile. And basically, they're. I think they set up, and at the end, they're. They say it's not terminal, but but it almost sounds like it is. Uh, but it it sure seems like it's setting up a vicious death spiral. I call them vicious death spirals because. Look, I, th- I think also what's going to happen, which may drive more taxpayers out, is they're going to try to get the progressive tax in. Right. And I think you have to be pretty naive to think that it's only going to impact the upper 3% and not the middle class. And once they get that nose under the tent, there's no question they're going to go at everything that moves for higher right. taxation. Well, again, we, we usually don't uh, delve deeply into politics, but I think Illinois has been a case where both of the governors uh, – Position and the uh, mayor of Illinois is sort of like open season for uh, various people that want uh, tax money. So the uh, uh, the state of Illinois had a budget this year, but the budget was one of the most uh, generous in in history. And now I think the teachers union in, in Chicago see this as their chance to cash in on their support for uh, uh, the candidates. So again, I think it, no one it, right now is exercising the discipline that's necessary to deal with these issues. The the, the uh, good news is, though, that Illinois is still a relatively prosperous state. We're w- well above the national average. Uh, and, they, and they did point that out. They said it's, that's why they're saying, you know, it could be fixed, but it's going to take uh, some real attitude changes to and, fix it. And uh, Chicago was just rated the best big city. Uh, uh, now, I, this says <laughs> the state was ranked dead last. Uh, it was, uh, and it did say Chicago's dynamic, but it said, uh, oh, somewhere here so oh the state ranks number 50 in the latest ranking of states fiscal health by the mercatus center at george mason university and residents are paying the price with higher taxes but they do point out chicago is kind of a desirable place uber has a couple thousand jobs up there but in this point this article was like well they're watching though they're watching carefully to see where where the wind's blowing And it's just talking about essentially, you know, again, it goes, what happens is the population declines and taxpayers flee, property values fall, and the tax burden grows for those who remain. Yeah, That's the vicious death spiral yeah, I worry about. This is sort of a, maybe not a pleasant thing to say, but a lot of people fleeing are not necessarily the high, high-income taxpayers. There's been a lot of low-income people exit the state as well, which, again, uh, is not good news for the state in terms of its vitality, but in terms of the impact on the uh, – on the economy, it's not uh, not that great. One of the one of the uh, deficiencies of our modern economy is that people aren't willing to move for jobs anymore. Uh, one of the reasons why uh, unemployment stays high in some places and very low other places is that people no longer are willing to pack up and leave. So the fact that people are moving is is a, a certain extent uh, a kind of dynamism that's not necessarily bad. Yeah, I mean, and the, you don't have the you know the migration of people from Appalachia. Even though uh, West Virginia, even though it's and the Kentucky poorest or, area, maybe yeah. in the country, but yeah. they still stay there, even though right. you know move, right? <laughs> you know, go where the job. The same thing is true in in Europe that people aren't willing to move from southern Italy to northern Italy or from wherever to wherever else uh, when when things are bad one place and better someplace else. I moved from Urbana to Champagne okay. in 1989. Oh, <laughs> I mean, that was kind of a big jump, Fred. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> <laughs> only to hear people from Champagne talk about us Urbana folks like yeah. like we were from a different planet yeah. and like no I wear socks and shoes too. Uh, anyway, uh, well, okay. So I just I I look at these staggering numbers. I guess is why I brought yeah. it up today. It, these numbers almost to to a layperson when you start talking about well they're arguing about whether it's 134 billion of pension right. debt or the state debt or is it 250 yeah. billion. 
and the Chicago is it twenty two or is it thirty billion? And, yeah. And, and, well, it's still Chicago is a different, a little bit different situation. But the state of Illinois has lots of options. They just simply are not willing to do that. They don't have the discipline to deal with the pension obligation over a multi year period. They always, right. uh, uh, you know, back off or whatever plan they they uh, move into. So we have a fancy pants with us today. We have Ryan Repco because he was he was named in an article with some pretty good uh, company. Some people think so anyways. I just, there's debate, I suppose. <laughs> Susie Orman, she's not always loved by everybody. There's a lot. She can be kind of, uh, oh, you know, combative and, yeah, whatever. And uh, Dave Ramsey, uh, who's obviously, yeah. he's, a, he's a national financial star. I think that's a good way to put it. But Ryan was also mentioned in the article and it was in yahoo finance and it was about how to retire early according to Susie orman dave ramsey and eight other experts i guess you were one of the eight other experts yeah i got lumped in and i also didn't know who you were talking about when you said we have an expert or a special guest with us. <laughs> well i said fancy pants fancy pants i'm looking around the room it's the same old usual characters but yeah it was, it was pretty nice to be named in an article with some bigger names and um you know what was your advice my, my advice was simply that for folks who are looking to retire early there's a nice benefit by having uh, a 401k where you can retire. If you leave service at the age of 55 or older, you retire. You can use that money from your 401k without incurring the 10% penalty, which is otherwise something you'd be assessed if you have an IRA and you try to pull the money out before you're age 59 and a half. So the benefit is you gain four and a half years that spread between 55 and 59 and a half where you can pull out money without that penalty. Uh, by simply keeping your money in a 401k or in what I had mentioned too is if maybe you've changed jobs and you uh, consider rolling your money over, see if you can check with your current employer about rolling the money from your old 401k into your current one so you don't permanently lose that 55 distribution ability by putting it into an IRA. Okay. Well, good. I mean, they obviously felt like that was, you know, useful advice because, you know, they did try to limit it and they already had a few of the spots taken so by some pretty big names yeah so I, i'm sure he mentioned my name yeah. that's why i really got it in there fred anyway <laughs> can you tell i'm going to texas today for a week <laughs> i'm in pretty good mood um <laughs> i'm not leaving <laughs> illinois permanently don't worry fred uh so now i want to go into 10 retirement lessons from a retirement pro and this was an article uh from a fellow named richard quinn titled 10 lessons from a retired retirement pro and I think the kids wanted me to show this, Fred, because they they can't even relate to retirement, <laughs> probably. And with this fellow was a financial advisor in a sense for about forty years, and he would do uh, oh speaking engagements, and he would do seminars, travel the country. Uh, it sounded like he had a pretty interesting gig. And once he retired, he realized, wow, retirement. There's a lot of surprises when it comes to retirements, and you're not fully. I don't know whether yeah. you're you know what your situation you're still working and all that but whether you have friends that could relate to this um it was pretty insightful and he wrote no matter how well you've prepared how generous your sources of retirement income is money is always on your mind because we know there are no do-overs that's a big one and we know that running out of money is a is the number one concern i think we even have a study to, to talk about today um it is kind of, I try to explain to prospective clients and clients that it is a big stakes game because there really, there isn't a lot of room for do-overs if you make mm -hmm. critical mistakes. So that seems like a common sense one, but I think people think that at some point they'll quit worrying about money, and it sounds like for a lot of people that might not be the case. And I see that somewhat in my practice, though I would say after a couple years, I think if people have an engaged advisor, it doesn't have to be us. I'm just talking to Gage. And they have a plan, and they're basically telling them when to step on the gas and spending and when not. I think after a couple of years, that worry really does go away. But I think for do-it-yourselfers, for a lot of times, you, that might be one of the consequences of doing it yourself. It's always that second-guessing what you do and second-guessing what you don't do. Right. I have to say, from just reading the article myself, that I was kind of surprised that a seasoned veteran of 40 years in the industry still has the same exact uh, kind of fears that, most retirees do and just the concerns is like here's someone who presumably knows all the data behind uh, the investments and understands the game because they've been an advisor for so long and yet they still had the same fears it, it was almost like a piercing of the veil to help 
you know, kind of see that it's it's universal regardless of of your acumen in finance. And there's always something to worry about. I, I, even if you if you have money, you have to worry about how you use it. If you don't have it, you of have course. To, so I just read a and that was interesting. Charles Schwab just he was uh, interviewed, and that was one of the things he said. He goes, "Yeah, I still worry about money just differently. Yeah. It's like how to be responsible with all this wealth that he has." Yeah, I just read a question and answer uh, thing, and the question was, "I'm." In my early 60s, I have no retirement savings. What do I do? And that's a, that's a different kind of question. And the question you wouldn't was, want to ask me that question after I had three beers because you might not like the answer. <laughs> but the answer was uh, work longer, uh, sell your house, cut back on uh, all, your ex- all your expenditure. That's not a f- very pleasant set of options compared to the ones we're talking about here about how, mm-hmm. you, how you manage your money. There's only so many moves on the checkerboard. There comes a point where you say, well, okay, all is not lost, but... To a large extent, it's like there's only so many moves, and you just pretty much named them. You're going to continue working. But that can turn out to be a problem because I just read an article, and it was a survey of 20,000 people that are, you know, that had to, re- that 50 and older that they uh, surveyed. It was, uh, I forget which institute, one of the governmental agencies along with another. And uh, but it's twenty thousand uh, people surveyed that were fifty or older, and about half of them had to leave work. Were basically forced from work once they were past fifty. Not exactly at fifty, but at some point, fifty percent of them retired earlier before than they wanted to and they planned to. So that's the other risk. But I think that I think that fear that kind of is maintains itself for a lot of people through retirement again. It's kind of an irreversible decision when we retire, and most people at least choose for it to be, and it's a big stakes, no do-over type situation. Then he goes on to say, is another one, is I'm convinced that once retired, the ability to rebuild savings remains essential. You need emergency money outside your regular retirement plan, and you need to replenish that fund if it's used. And boy, is that true. How often have you guys, you guys have figured this out, because um, you heard me say it so many times, I'd ask people, okay, well, how much money do you have? Just kind of set aside in case of emergency, break glass. Just when you look over at that account, what's your number that makes you feel more at ease? For some people, it's 5000 For some people, it's 500000 Uh, But that's certainly the case. And I've noticed that people that maintain those reserves, you know, just for just stuff that they just weren't planning on and curveballs, they seem to be much more relaxed throughout retirement. Certainly, you get a health scare that pops up, and all of a sudden, you're on the hook for maybe several thousand dollars or more easily just from one event. And the older you are, the more susceptible you are to possibly having multiple of those in a year. So it it becomes a way to buffer some of those things, certainly. And the next one, uh, maintaining your lifestyle isn't as easy as it looks. And he was really referring to inflation as real. For many people, health care spending, property taxes, and rent will be big inflation concerns. There's no escaping inflation, so you need to plan. Even at modest inflation, Fred, uh, you know, it still creeps up, doesn't it? And, it, it right. and that also, does that depend a lot about whether you're renting versus owning and those type of things? Yeah, there's a, a technical issue about how much uh, housing counts in the uh, cost of living index. And again, if you own your own house, you're benefiting by, or not benefiting, but at least not being harmed by, uh, inflation in that area, but if you don't, then it's obviously very expensive. But older people tend to be uh, uh, more likely to own their own home, so that's less of a, a concern. And we've noticed, and the studies have shown that even though what he says is true, you still have to keep your eye on this inflation. Inflation is real. That retirees, and we anecdotally we we experience it, but there's studies that also show that people that are retired, they kind of Dave describes it as the shape of a smile, sort of they might spend a little more on the very front end of retirement, but then throughout retirement, it declines relative to inflation, uh, historically at least. And then at the end, it can tick up again because of health care expenses or long-term care expenses. But um, I, in my 35 years, uh, most of it, inflation was pretty normal, pretty tame, and probably for the last 10 years with disinflation, I guess is what you would call it, uh, I haven't noticed any particular problems with uh, clients that have, you know, that have plan-based strategies um, have any real problem keeping up with their cost of living. In fact, it's really to the contrary. It's really, they, if you're following the right strategy, you, you should really have the opposite problem over time. Well, and part of that's because our plan is 
built under the assumption that the spending is going to increase over time to account for inflation. And then they're all invested for the I can't think of really any clients that are invested 100% in bonds or fixed income. Right. And I think that's where the problem really arises is if people are excessively, quote, conservative in their investment portfolio and put all their money in, in short-term bonds or CDs or money market funds. And, you know, at first they're saying, okay, it generates enough income for me to live. But even if that income just kind of stays the same over time, it's buying less and less stuff over time. And that's where you can run into problems. And even adding, I, I tell people who are nervous investors, it doesn't mean you have, you know, I'm not saying you have to be even 50% in stocks. Adding even 20 or 30% can be such a difference maker as far as just allowing you to keep up with the cost of living. Yeah, I think I think my minimum would be 20%. I think if somebody wanted to be, though right now I'm not even sure about that, with CD rates essentially between 0 and 1 or 1.5%, somewhere in that zone. I'm sure there's some specials that have 2% still. But, you know, even in that environment, they, they really need to be at least, I've always felt like nobody should, there shouldn't be any just rules, but most people probably should follow a hundred percent fixed income uh you know they should at least maintain a twenty percent just just for that inflation impact to try to uh heal that a little bit uh the next one the transition to retirement isn't easy and and i've you know i get to watch it you guys get to watch it in real time it's a it's a it's a very interesting transition in, in retiring uh and, and for lots of reasons but a primary one at first is well no more paycheck no more accumulating and investing. Now we're going without a paycheck and we're spending some of our assets from time to time. And that's a big mental adjustment to get over. And for some people, if they're gonna delay social security, like a lot of our clients do, that means you might be relying on portfolio withdrawals on the front end for three or four or five years that are a little larger than what you would say are standard issue and uh, that can be a real challenge for people uh, from a psychological standpoint. And then it relates to other ones. Okay, for a lot of people, their work is also their social interaction. That ends. You know, it's kind of like, hey, where have all my friends gone? Well, a lot of them were at work. Uh, she did today. So that, that, those are some real challenges there. And then the final one, and we didn't get to all 10, but I didn't think all 10 of them were that good. Uh, there's an end to retirement. I, says, I don't want to be maudlin, but before graduating uh, school or college, we look forward to a career. During our career, we look forward to retirement. Once we retire, we look forward to waking up. I mean, I, I don't know about that, but, but you know, I think there's an aspect of that, uh, that component in retirement. I mean, retirement is not all about financial issues. Um, I think it's just as much of addressing that the psychological and the social needs and that fabric and that structure. Uh, needs to be all intertwined and probably thought out ahead of time about, well, I'm sure if I retired, my wife would say, well, you can do what you want. I'm still going to go about my business. I, <laughs> we're not hanging out all day together. Uh, at least I think she would. That's what I think. Um, any additional comments on that from what your guys' perspective, guys in their 20s and 30s? Well, on the that last point in particular, the thing that I think about is, just remembering, you know, this isn't a dress rehearsal. It is, it's the one life you get. And I think it, there is a tendency for people who are, in particular, people who are really good savers during their working years. They're really good at delaying gratification. You can take that to too much of an extreme. And when you are retired in particular, like you said, there's some psychological issues as far as kind of worrying about running out of money, which can lead people to be really, really conservative in their spending, way more so than they need to be. Obviously, you don't want to overspend, but you also don't want to underspend and just kind of sit around and not enjoy yourself. So I think there is that balancing act, and you need to think about the fact that, you know, you need to enjoy yourself and and not, you know, unnecessarily sacrifice your lifestyle. And this is going to sound self-serving because we're in the retirement planning business, right? Um, but just try to trust me on this just from my experience. I don't know how people do it on their own. I really don't. I mean, it's not saying they're not smart enough to do it. It's just the way our DNA works as humans. I don't know how somebody without the, a certain skill set, I'll put it that way, I don't know how they don't wake up every day and wonder, I wonder if I'm spending too little or if I wonder if I'm spending too much. And I suspect that 
if there was ever a substantial survey of retired investors that are managing their own investments, and again, this probably sounds like BS, um, I would bet pretty serious money that the vast majority of them would say on any given day they're worried that they're spending too much or too little. And I think you would find that most of them are either spending too much or too little. They really don't know what that comfort zone is. What is a reasonably reasonable withdrawal rate at this point in time with this balance of money and this much life expectancy left? I just, I, it just, I wonder how they do that. Maybe somebody will tell me. Maybe they'll call me and say, I do it just fine. Well, I think a lot of people... And I don't have to pay you. Uh, just from reading online and, and different things, and especially like in the early retirement community, which I kind of, I follow a couple of their podcasts and whatnot. Is that you trying and, to tell me something, Dave? <laughs> Dave's following I, the early retirement community. I, I just find it a really interesting kind of concept, and I just kind of like seeing what the advice is that's out there. A lot of people are following just that 4% rule, which is you're withdrawing 4% of your starting balance, you're increasing it for inflation each year, and basically just no matter what happens with your investment portfolio, no matter how much it goes up or down, you're just following that plan. And we've talked about this the other day, how just even conceptually taking a totally fixed withdrawal strategy that doesn't adjust whatsoever is never going to be an optimal strategy for taking money out of a very variable investment portfolio. You really, it's almost like common sense dictates that you would adjust your portfolio withdrawal based on the investment returns that you're earning. And if you started out with the 4% rule, things may be plugging along fine the first few years, and then you get into something really nasty, nobody's going to follow the 4% rule. I mean, this is when you're going to second guess it, and you're going, you're, this is where the mistakes are made, when people try to follow these simple rules. Yes, there's a certain sensibility built around the 4% rule. Uh, but I will say this, that's only using historical data. So if you expand what could happen in a stock and bond market returns, uh, all of a sudden you find that maybe 80%, you know, you might make it to your last day with a dollar in your hand, but 20% of the time you're probably going to run out of money before you run out of pulse. Uh, at least that's what my simulation using sensible simulation is telling me. So I'm working on a project to put a dynamic strategy of adjusting kind of like what we do on a day-to-day -day basis next to the 4% rule in a some kind of a webinar or something to show people just the, the pluses and the minuses of those strategies. We have Jack on line one. Jack, thanks for calling. How can we help you? Yeah, hey, yeah uh, quick question there. Uh, while the other day I heard were uh, Swab and I think TD Ameritrade, another one, was going to these uh, zero-based uh, fees. Yes. I wonder if you guys could uh, comment on that here. Yeah, it's been a race to zero uh, for some time. Now, Fred, we've seen this with mutual funds uh, with fees dramatically declining, literally to zero, because Fidelity finally came out with a U.S. total U.S. stock market fund that actually has zero expenses, no tricks there. And so it's been a race to the bottom, and these firms have figured out that that's a commodity business and there's no future in it unless you're the low price producer in a commodity. So they're not doing this just to be kind they're look they they know that what they're really trying to grab because i think schwab said it's only going to shave off two or three percent of their gross profit margin okay mm -hmm. well that's a lot i'm sure that's a big number but they also figure if they could pick up an additional trillion dollars or so mm -hmm. of assets because of something like this uh where people say you know what i don't need to be over here with these smaller more gimmicky firms that are trying to give it away i can be, actually be with a powerhouse like a schwab i'm not promoting them i'm just thinking of the mindset of people well then there's things like okay if you're going to be in their money market fund their standard money market fund it might pay you zero so you're going to have cash there there's a lot of ways for these firms to make money outside of commissions is what they found they can cross sell all kinds of other products that do have fees and commission or not commissions involved but maybe high, higher fees than zero and of course that's what's going on here it's a loss leader at this point it's it's yeah. it's what when i first reason. got in the business you know there's fixed commissions yeah uh, so we're coming out of the fixed commission world to now they've gone to zero yeah. officially it's a uh, similar to uh, zero cost checking at a bank yeah uh, obviously checking costs a lot of money for banks to take care of but uh, they attract you to uh, uh, have that as your institution. There are other things they can make money on. There was also a more detailed 
article recently about the uh, uh, zero commissions and uh, it asserted that uh, the firms doing that uh, use a sweep where they take money out That's of what, yeah. accounts and, and they pay a lot lower interest on that than they would Almost in traditional yeah. money market accounts. So, so they make some of it up with the, the sweeps. Yep, you know? the sweep and the float. So that's what's going on, Jack. And now I do see a dark lining, not a silver lining in this. Okay, that sounds like on paper that's, okay, I can trade stocks for free. I'm just afraid it's going to encourage people to trade stocks more frequently, <laughs> yeah. which we all know, as Warren Buffett said, you know, benign neglect, you know, resembling the sloth is the best investment strategy there is. So, well, uh, yeah. According it, to, I guess our theory is you should be, you shouldn't have any stocks at your... Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. we don't follow that strategy. We like safety in numbers and diversification. Yeah. And so I do have this fear that, you know, it's just... It's just one more reason for people to set themselves on fire financially because now they can trade for zero and they can trade their brains out. I wonder how big of a difference that'll really make because what was it like five or six bucks for most of the big yeah, custodians just, out there anyways. But maybe even that's enough of a deterrent, mm-hmm. you know, to keep people from trading multiple times a day or something. Do You know, that's the stuff when people get real outrageous and they're just trading all the time, you know, multiple trades a day and whatnot. Well, we saw that, that Fred, remember, in the, in the mid to late yeah, 90s. Yeah, you everybody, don't hear about day traders anymore. I suppose they're still around. But, uh, well, yeah, they're all homeless, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, look, all the studies show that it's a really – it's a it's a bad habit. But on Yahoo Finance, they had an article about a guy who turned ten thousand dollars into two million over you know two yeah. years day trading. Does that make sense to you, Jack? As far as the explanation? Uh, yeah. The only other question I would have is, and maybe I'm uh, just not understanding the whole ordeal. But so basically, how do, how would this relate back to your average investor that's with you guys or another financial firm, whoever? With this, uh, is that gonna would that uh, is that gonna re- make a reduction in, in in advisory fees or how does that work? It's hard. I think it's hard to say. Well, we know that with this uh, lower commissions, we call it friction cost to invest money is certainly the clients become a beneficiary of that because that all gets passed on to the client. So it you know it's 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 so inexpensive now for us to to do everything we need to do for our clients. It's, it's, I always tell prospective clients, it's really an insignificant amount of money. I mean, if it was on the ground, I'd pick it up, but it certainly doesn't. If your question is, will it have an impact on f- kind of like full meal deal financial advisors? It hasn't yet. Now, there's a whole industry that thinks that, you know, advisors charging 1% on assets under management, which is a pretty standard fee around the country. It actually hasn't dropped at all. If anything, it's actually trickled up a little bit. Now, financial advisory firms, Jack, are finding that they have to do a heck of a lot more for clients than they used to do for that 1% or whatever it is. But I suspect that over time, uh, even the cost of hiring a financial advisor. Well, you can go out and hire financial advisors. Some of them are almost free now. So, uh, but if you look at the main swath, if I looked at Jack, if I looked at the major powerhouse registered investment advisory firms, you'd be talking about what creative planning. You'd be talking about Edelman. You'd be talking about some of the others. Uh, that that the big one that got pulled up by like Goldman Sachs. United, United Capital. Capital. These are twenty, thirty, forty billion dollar firms. Um, their pricing has, and I haven't seen their advisory fees go down at all. Some of them are higher than one percent on the first five hundred thousand or a million. So it hasn't taken place yet. Is there a sticker price issue though, where uh, the real price may be less than the uh, the price you see on the uh, on the website? Well. Uh, most firms don't. Um, you know, I, I was always a sucker for that for a while until the kids beat it out of me. You know, I would kind of like try to assess the relationship and, figure, you know, and sometimes I would, for whatever reason, wake up one day and charge a little bit less. It was really no, it's not a sensible business strategy. And I find that most firms, when I go to these conferences and talk to other firms, most of them are pretty sticky on their fees. There has to be a pretty good reason. Otherwise, it gets a real, it's a real clumsy, muddy business plan yeah. because if you have different people get paying different fees, it's kind of like hotels do it, I guess, and flights. You might be sitting next yeah. to somebody that paid two hundred dollars more, but well, money managers do at the uh, at the institutional level. There's a real uh, pressure on fees for not not for investors, just the investment but for, management, but, but, but the people who invest actually 
do the investing. Yep. Uh, I mean, that's that's a race to the zero. Because they're, they're charging you for something that is free with index funds. All right, Jack, I hope that answers your question. Yep, yep. Thank thanks. You. Now we are going to go to Bruce. Bruce, thanks for calling. How can we help you? Um, I've got a question for yeah, you. I yes, have sir. a family member who's extremely conservative and uh, has always had his money in CDs and not made very much money. And I've always tried to convince him that he needs to diversify and get into some stocks and this sort of thing. And if you're if you were talking to a client like that today, with the stock market being at this historical high, what would you what would you tell them? Well, I think the easiest thing to show them is here's what your world, your life's going to look like over the remainder of your life if you keep doing what you're doing. This is what your lifestyle is going to look like. Here's if you edge out and you pick 10 or 20% of your CD money and put it broadly diversified globally in index funds. Here's what your life is likely to look like. And then we'll probably show them a little higher, but they're not going to go there. But just so they can, so they've seen it. Here's if you put as much as half of your money in the stock market, knowing that somebody who's that conservative is not going to do that. And what we try to do, frankly, Bruce, is just give them the information and they can make an intelligent decision. Uh, so one of the things we're not going to do is convince them that they're nuts and it's a terrible strategy and you need to do this. We're just going to say, look, keep doing what you're doing. This is what you're going to get. Here's a couple of other ideas, scenarios. This is how that would be likely pay out, which keep doing what you're doing or pick one of these other ones, but at least you know. So in other words, <clears throat> you go from make you from decide to find out to let's find out and then decide. That's a much better approach. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think it's... I, I guess my concern would have, you know, with the stock market being where it is now, and you, and my fear would be that you convince somebody that, hey, this is what you need to do, and then, <laughs> and then the stock market takes that cyclical turn down, and then they feel like, uh, you know, I made the wrong mistake, or I made the, a mistake, you know, and... Of course. So well... I, well, that's, I mean, that's a very real possibility no matter where the stock market is. So whether it's at all-time highs or near all-time highs or near all-time lows or anywhere in between, there's always the chance that, you know, we deal with that with clients coming on board. You always wonder, like, okay, clients are going to move their money to us, and then a bear market starts the very next day. There's, there's always a possibility for that. It's not any more likely uh, at all-time market highs than it is anywhere else. And if you're doing it for a family member, too, if you try to convince a family member, what I found out is yeah. that's, you, you know, if you do that, you know, your your relative is no longer the craziest person in the room. Uh, that's a really tough, because, you know, because everybody feels like they could be the author of the book, How Come Investments Work Until I Buy Them? Yeah. And you'll be the author of that book. <laughs> it surely will happen. But I, give, I want to give you some historical perspective, though. I was hearing this, I was getting the same questions 30 years ago on this show. That's when I started. Uh, except the Dow was at like 3,000 or 3,500. And you see what I mean? Uh, but, but that right. lifetime issue doesn't play out when they no sooner do it. And, and then they call in Bruce and saying, you lost me $42,000, Bruce. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's coming at you, double barrels. Because uh, so you're right. Uh, your heart's in the right place. I think your brain's in the right place. Um, just get some duct tape yeah. and put it over your mouth and just don't say it. Yeah, well, I, it's dollar, just cost, a, dollar cost average is a way of psychological way of uh, of dealing with this. It, it doesn't eliminate the problem, but it makes it, it a explain bit dollar cost averaging. Well, is, instead of going uh, from uh, zero to, to say fifty percent equities, you do it gradually over a period of uh, months or years, and you're and on average, you're going to lose lose money because you're investing and in, uh, not investing in something that's going to go up faster. But it does give you some downside risk and psychological protection against um, this de decline. And you know, the other thing that can help too, it just it's really not any different, but a psychological reframing is say they're going out to ten or twenty percent stock. Frame it as look, you still have X dollars or X percent of your portfolio in CDs or in really short-term stable bonds. You're not going to need to touch this stock stuff when it's down for years and years and years and years. You could go probably the rest of your life and never have to withdraw from the stock portion. So sometimes that helps people because it just mentally they're like, oh, yeah, but I, 
I'm not selling that, and I have a really long time horizon for that portion of my portfolio. And you guys have heard me do this a lot right. of times. I'll say, look, here's an intelligence strategy. Let's make it. Let's say we're going to go out and, and to 20% stocks from zero. I might say, Bruce, let's make a down payment of 10% today, and that lets you and I agree to pray that the stock market falls 30 to 50% over the next coming weeks or months, because then we will deploy the rest of it. And if it doesn't. If what we're afraid of doesn't happen, well, wait a minute, we're not supposed to be afraid of what we want that to happen. Unfortunately, it's probably not going to happen, and you're probably going to pay higher prices. It's, there's a lot of psychological messaging that goes on here where sometimes you have to turn a fear into, wow, I can actually use that for me because if what happens that I'm afraid of, I'll have more firepower that I didn't use it all up on day one, which gets back to Fred's dollar cost averaging. It's mm -hmm. just a, a different way to frame dollar cost averaging is just saying, hey, let's make a down payment now because that's really the best decision. But to ease the emotion of regret, we're going to play this little game of hoping the stock market goes down. I, I think that there's so much fear wrapped up in these decisions. And, you know, I explained this to my family member that, you know, when the stock market dropped, you know, back in 2008, if you had taken a portion of your money then and put it in, just think about what you would have now. Yeah, four times you know, more. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, uh, you know, anyway, it's but you know, hard to get over that fear. What yeah. works on paper yeah. and on a spreadsheet doesn't work in real life. But you, but you nailed it on the head. When you said, I think it comes down to fear, I was going to say, Bruce, is there a second to that? I mean, is there something <laughs> else? There isn't, in my opinion. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, well, it's funny he brings that up because I, I was thinking about writing an article, and I don't know exactly where I would go with it, but I'll be interested to hear your input on this, Dad. But I want to make, I think it's worth having a discussion that like maybe people shouldn't fear stock market declines so much. Sometimes I feel like there's this excessive fear of declines, and maybe it's because the financial industry talks about volatility as risk and risk, and they use that word. But really, like I said earlier, if you have a, a proper appropriate plan that is built to withstand market declines and you're not selling while the market's down and especially for like I said if people have several years worth of portfolio withdrawals and stable stuff it's like maybe you don't need to be so afraid of those declines but I don't know if that if it might just be an impossible situation where people are wired the way they are and there's there's no way to get around that. I'm convinced of uh, having done this for 35 years it's just the way human nature is a failed investor and I don't think certain <laughs> things change over even millions of years. I, I think I think Bruce nailed it with the word it's fear, it's real, it's tribal, it's it it it, it drives so much of fear drives almost all the mistakes in investing. And fear comes from being surprised. And surprises the mother of you panic. Know, I think when back in 2008, when the market was tumbling, you know, it's you're doing everything you can to not pull everything out. Exactly. You know, you're, you're just so scared that you're going to lose everything. Exactly. And, uh, you know, for the people that didn't and they kind of wrote it out, they, they came out fine, you know, but it's uh, it's it's scary. It was know, a everyday people. struggle for yeah. me, Bruce, just to get people to rebalance. Okay because their stock portion relative to their bonds went down a lot and really the appropriate, it was tooth and nail to get people to even agree to rebalance. What they really wanted to do is just sell everything and just why they can, you know, before they lose everything. That really was the mentality. So 10 years out, yeah. we look back and go, wow, what is, you know, uh, I, I would have paid you a lot of money, Bruce, if you could get anybody to, to do your strategy on that day. It was all I could do. I think, uh, all of my clients maintained their positions and or rebalanced even, except for two. That's my recollection. And so uh, I think that is because I recognized decades ago that surprises the mother of panic and panic is where once that sets in, there's no inoculation that I can mm -hmm. give you. So I've always gone out of my way and I'm always bad mouthing. You know, I'm always, <laughs> I think clients and prospective clients expect financial people to say, Oh, that's not going to happen. That, don't worry about that. That's not going to happen. Whereas I always embrace it and say, you know what? Let's not talk about if that's going to happen. Let's talk about when that's going to happen. Because it's going to happen and it's part of the deal. And by the way, you wouldn't get premium returns from ownership of the great companies of America and the world if there wasn't premium fluctuation. It's just the deal. If you don't like it, stay away. But if you're going to 
if you really want to get to heaven having done everything you wanted to do on earth, as you've explained, it's going to take some of your money to be in the ownership or partial ownership of the great companies of America and the world. And from that day on, we take the client on, we know for a few years we're going to be having a lot of conversations and, and working on the emotional and the behavioral side of staying in the game and keeping your head. Believe me, it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, thank you guys All for, right. uh, for the conversation. I hope they help. I think that helps a lot of people because that is a very common question, Bruce. So I, I thank you for even calling and asking the question. Thanks. You know, the the other challenge, too, I think, is that people see, you know, if you see a, a portfolio statement one one month and then the next month it's $10,000 lower, that's very concrete. You can see that, that, you can call it a cost or that downside opportunity cost in terms of foregone returns is not as concrete it's a lot more intangible and i think people don't always even realize what they're giving up by being so conservative and that gets back to your initial point where usually the first thing we do is we show them well here is the opportunity cost here's what you're here's what you're giving up by staying with you know an all cd strategy versus even putting 10 or 20% in, you know, equity. Mutual Everybody funds. wants to be comfortable, but they just don't know the price of comfort. Exactly. And what, what I do is I always price the comfort. Look, if you want to be comfortable, great. But here's, here's what it's really costing you. I just want you to see it. I really don't care whether you do it or not. But I will tell you this. This is a pretty good estimate of what it's costing you. Fred, why do you suppose uh, somebody can be 60 or 70 years old? They could see in their lifetime the standard and poor's 500 index go from say 20 rounded up to 3,000, the dividends go up 14 or 15 fold, or cost of living maybe up four or five fold. Yet, how can that same person say stocks are risky? This yeah. is that, is that ever going to change and why can't it change? I don't, th I think, I don't think so. I think one reason is uh, short term, long term, your short term fear maybe is, uh, uh, more dramatic or more vivid to you than the long-term saying you might lose 20% in the next two months compared to gaining 300% over the next 10 years. So, right. And, but uh, I, I'm I actually saying the same thing you said, but uh, a little longer in a different way. The uh, the cost of investing in, uh, in equities is overcoming your fear, and the only reason you're getting a return on equities is because of the volatility. If they, didn't, if they were perfectly... Um, predictable. There would be no equity premium, and you get the same thing as your your fixed income. So the only way you you play the game is to overcome your fear and take your chances. Uh, that, that's the, uh, it's spot on because if you can't conquer that fear, you're never going to be a successful investor. You're just not. You're you're not gonna, you're not going to be able to. And people play on that. You hear ads all the time about we can protect your your gains and uh, and and make sure you don't lose anything. I, I, but the cost of that is huge. And the product that's typically recommended with, with that sales pitch is fixed index annuities or equity indexed annuities where they say, no matter what, you're going to get, you know, 0% credited to your account. But then, you know, depending on the return of some index that you choose, we're going to credit your account based on that. And there's all these weird rules like participation rates where they only pay you a portion of the return and, and monthly caps or yearly right. caps and things. And what people hear, and I think what is said sometimes, but I definitely know what the person hears is, okay, I have zero chance of decline and I get the upside or, or, or a lot of the upside of the market. But if you look at the returns of those products, the right, in, right in line with stable bonds and CDs, you know what I mean? It's If, if you've got a really perfectly stable investment, like Dr. Gertz said, it's not going to have a high return. It's just reality. Yeah, a fixed indexed annuity, these things that are linked to the stock market. It's the la I wouldn't buy if it was the last investment on the planet to buy, I wouldn't buy one. That just that's my opinion. I mean, maybe somebody could make a case for them. I don't think anybody could make an analytical, mm -hmm. educated, intelligent case for them, but I'm sure they could make a case for them. I mean, look, politics, I mean, somebody's lying, right? <laughs> They're all making their case. And you can you can achieve uh in a sense, the same thing by uh, changing your mix of equities to fixed income. If you and just living with what you said, yeah. conquering that fear. I think part of it is, is we talk about the financial media a lot, and and, and that's where it all starts. Because when you hear an ad like I did the other day, oh, the stock market with one tweet can go down six hundred points in mm -hmm. ten minutes. You know, you're doomed. So come to us for a solution. I think if 
if just the words financial people and financial media, if they would just change the language. In other words, why call stocks risky? Why not to say, presuming one's diversified, stocks will fluctuate above and below a rising permanent uptrend. It's going to happen. So the whole point is, yes, they fluctuate, but what are they fluctuating around? A rising permanent uptrend. Now, I guess I have to say officially, there's no guarantee that it's going to be a rising permanent uptrend, okay? But uh, that's, for regulatory purposes, I, I guess it could change in the future, Fred. We, I guess stock returns over the next 100 years could be zero or less. Well, uh, and I guess to even be attracted to investing in the stock market at all, you really need to have that belief that it's going to go up over time. Otherwise, there'd be no point in investing in it if it was just, you know, expected to go sideways unless you had a timing advantage, which seemingly no one does. There's really no way you could profit You really do, You need to have that belief. You you do have to have a belief that markets work, that people will have to pay for capital, so therefore I'm going to get a return. Uh, that, that markets are reasonable at re, re, do reasonably well at discerning what prices probably ought to be at any given time, though not perfect. And it's that faith in the future. I, I think you're right, David. Without it, why are we even talking? Because you're never going to, if you don't have that faith, uh, unshakable faith, I would say, and the patience and discipline to do it from the onset, just forget it. Just buy CDs. You know, I mean, that's just least. Don't blow yourself up because the worst thing that can happen is if you really don't have that faith, you invest a hundred thousand for retirement, in retirement, and suddenly it's worth fifty thousand, and you bail, like so many people did. I still have people walking in my door probably once a month that did that. They bailed somewhere near the bottom in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, okay. and what a price! The the price is it's calculable. I can calculate it. Uh, I don't do it in front of them. Otherwise, that would be kind of mean. But uh, I certainly enjoy doing <laughs> right. it internally in my brain. But I, I think uh, people have to have to uh, realize there's always going to be fear. Uh, so uh, even if you're you know all this stuff, you're still worried, but you have to live with it. Yep, you do. Well, guys, uh, thanks. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for the calls. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks for Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.